entitled this message, Waiting on the Harvest. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of a warning. Uh, starting today, we got a little ring there. You guys can get that. Starting today, the next several weeks are going to be some of the toughest parts of Revelation to read. They are filled with ominous, graphic, and violent symbolism that all describes the wrath and the judgment of God on evil and the wicked. Now, I believe the purpose of these descriptions of God's judgment are not to scare unbelievers, but to encourage believers. I don't believe John's motivation was to preach what we uh, former recovering Baptists call hellfire and damnation, okay? I think his purpose was to say, hey, redeemed, hang in there. Our Jesus is coming. You know, for some, God may use these sermons to call you. For some, maybe you'll be here the next few weeks and God will use them to mark you as one of his own, as we have learned about in our study of Revelation. He may do that, and of course, we welcome that. But for the next several weeks, I'm not going to be trying to, um, for lack of a better phrase, scare people into heaven. That's not my goal. My goal is to be an encouragement to you and a comfort to you who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So let's look at our passage, Revelation chapter 14. It's the last section of this incredibly powerful chapter, starting with verse 14. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head. Clearly that's Jesus. And a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, or or harvest, for the hour to harvest has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped, or harvested. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. We're going to get into that later. It's very interesting. And he called with a loud voice to the one with the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, about six feet for 1,600 stadia, about 184 miles. That's a powerful graphic image. So let's just close in prayer. (laughs) I love that joke. It never gets old. (laughs) Let's look at the history of this passage. I've entitled the, the history section, Harvest and Wine. So you have to understand that in the first century, particularly in all the ancient world, Everyone lived life around the harvest. Now, look, I have no idea anymore as a spoiled, rotten American. I have no idea when tomato season is because I eat fresh, beautiful tomatoes year round. Same with watermelon and grapes and whatever I want. I can go to Publix 
any time of year and get just about any kind of produce I want, in season or out of season. As a matter of fact, I don't even think there is such thing as out of season. I think it's a myth. (laughs) About two paragraphs could probably contain all I know about agriculture. But it wasn't like that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament in the ancient world. The world population in the ancient world had no choice but to live their lives in rhythm with local and nearby harvest seasons. Whether you were fishermen or farmers or shepherds, everyone knew every harvest season for just about every crop you can imagine. Oh, it's November, that's this harvest. Oh, it's June, that's that harvest. Even those unconnected with agriculture in every way understood the importance of the harvest season, certainly more than we do today. From the rich to the poor, soldiers, carpenters, lawyers, priests, everyone lived lives waiting on the harvest. This would make harvesting a very powerful, symbolic, relevant image throughout both the Old Testament and the New. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament uses the term or the idea of harvest over a hundred times as a metaphor for waiting on salvation or waiting for judgment. Jesus himself used it 10 times. So John's primarily writing to Jewish Christian readers. They would have immediately recognized and be familiar with the idea of a harvest motif to explain biblical truth. So that's the first thing. I also want you to see this idea of a wine press. In the same way, winemaking, that process was a very integral part of life in the ancient world. Kind of like how the internet is for us. Like I've seen some of you, post, I don't know how you post without internet, but you post on social media that my internet's down. Well, how did you do that? You know, <laughs> you spoiled rotten brat. No, your high speed internet is down, be accurate. Because remember, in the ancient world, there was no refrigeration to preserve anything that wasn't water. So wine actually became the second most consumed beverage. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are saying, great. (laughs) But you have to understand, fermentation was the only way to preserve fruit juices, like grape. Right, I messed that up. (laughs) We're going to edit that part of the video, rewind. Fermentation, for you that are alive, you get a treat. Fermentation was the only way to preserve fruit juices like grape juice or anything like that for any extended period of time. So wine and winemaking was also a very common, relevant metaphor throughout the Old Testament and the New, and oftentimes it was used to describe God's judgment. Everyone in society was familiar with the process of harvesting the grapes, putting them into a wine press. And the wine press, every wine press had two levels. The upper level was where the grapes are poured in and they're crushed with a feet or a big, large rolling stone. And the lower, <clears throat> collect, the lower level would collect the juices from the crushed grapes. From there, the juices poured into fermentation vessels. And there's another thing I want you to see historically is this phrase outside the city. This occurs all throughout scripture as well. Let me explain to you, whenever you see the phrase outside the city, this is what it means. Outside the city is where anything unclean or unsanitary was taken to be burned or disposed of. This was done obviously because there wasn't a whole lot of medical advancements. It was to protect the city from sickness. Matter of fact, people with contagious diseases like leprosy were banished to live outside the city. And what would begin to happen outside these ancient cities, there would be small mountains of refuse 
and waste and dead bodies and, and animal carcasses and all of it was continually smoldering and burning. And the smell at the wind blew the wrong way was overwhelming. Kind of like what happened here last Sunday when we had the meat that was spoiled on the other side. Some of y'all remember that? <clears throat> I did that on purpose as an illustration for this week. No. You know what else was outside the city? Crucifixions. That's where Jesus was crucified. And so this becomes powerful symbolism there because we know Jesus became unclean for us. Nobody would eat, drink, or touch anything that had been near these contaminated, eternally burning mounds of refuse. And that's where the wine press of the wrath of God is located. All right, that's the historical section. It's important to understand those. This is how people reading it in the first century would interpret it. The spiritual section I've entitled Two Harvests. First of all, I want you to see there are two harvests in this story. The first one is the harvesting of the wheat. The descriptions of the first harvest appear very death definitively to be a grain harvest. It is, in fact, the first fruits harvest that we read about last week when we studied the 144,000, remember? It says, you are the first fruits. This is what he's talking about. This was in Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, right here. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. We have learned that that 144,000 is a symbolic number representing all of the faithful, as it says in Revelation 14, all the faithful who follow the Lamb wherever he goes and proclaim that message. Remember that message we learned about. We'll study it again later. John describes someone coming down on a cloud with a crown. This is clearly Jesus on the day that we pray for, right? His return. I was joking with someone as I was walking this morning. I'd be okay if Jesus came back before I preached. Well, now that I'm in it, I want him to let me finish, but still, <laughs> I'd be okay. <clears throat> Along with Jesus is this angel. The angel is described as from the temple in heaven, and he has a loud proclamation or a message from God the Father. He declares, hey, the harvest is ripe. The word ripe, you know what it means? It actually means dry. And here's, what, here's why it's important. Grain crops were ready to harvest when the stalk that hold them was dry and withered. That's because at that point, the dry stalk is much easier for the reaper to cut and harvest the grain on top. If you go too soon, the, grain, the, the stalk is still green. It's hard to cut. You damage the fruit. The grain would not be fully developed. It's not a good time. So you have to wait till the stalk is dry. Jesus used a wheat harvest to symbolize a harvest of souls. It is, in fact, and this is beautiful, it is the same kind of concept that Jesus talked about when he talked about the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He said, let the wheat grow up lest we damage the fruit. But when the time is right, we will reap up the grain, bring it to our storehouse. It's the same harvest motif. God lets the wheat grow along with the wheat, lest you damage the fruit. And notice, I want you to notice something beautiful about this first harvest. It is Jesus who is personally harvesting the grain that represents us, the church. Isn't that beautiful? It's what we're waiting for. Jesus, come on, harvest us, we're ready. It's dry down here. <laughs> There's a second harvest, the harvest of the grapes of wrath. The second harvest is symbolized by that process of harvesting grapes 
and the crushing of the wine we mentioned earlier, this is a judgment harvest. You'll notice this correct connects directly with the theme we saw earlier in John chapter 14 about how God's wrath is symbolized by wine. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, remember this? He'll also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. This is clearly directly connected to earlier in the same chapter. The words of this imagery of winemaking as a symbol of God's wrath are actually borrowed from the book of Joel in chapter 3, verse 13. Look what it says here. Put, the, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Clearly, John's readers would have understood, oh, here we go, a winepress, grapes being crushed. This is judgment. Two more angels are dispatched for this second harvest. The first one has the sickle. And the second one is described as having authority over the fire. What fire? Who is this second angel? What fire is he in charge of? Watch this. It's beautiful now. See if you can pick this up. I think you're going to like this. We studied this. Revelation chapter 8, way back, verses 3 through 5. Remember that week that we burned incense up here so we'd understand the prayers of the saints? Look what this says. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. We've learned that 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 phrase there, thunder, rumblings, flashes, earthquake, that's always judgment. And we see this angel who's in charge of fire on the altar, taking the prayers of the saints, putting them in this censer with these coals. Remember that. What are those prayers? There are prayers for the return of Jesus. Our prayers for Jesus to come and judge the wicked. How long do we have to wait, O Lord? Do you remember that? We read that earlier. This angel takes this censer full of our prayers, fills it with hot coals from the altar that he oversees, and he hurls the fire and the prayers to the earth. Finally, our prayers for justice are being answered. They are flung to the earth on the wicked, The grapes of wrath are now being harvested. Then we have this wine press. The graphic symbolism of God's wrath compared to a wine press is also borrowed directly from the Old Testament. This whole chapter is full of quotations from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 63, I've taken parts of verses 1 through 6 and kind of broken it down for you in a narrative that's easy to read. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Who does that sound like? That's Jesus. I have trodden the winepress alone. No one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. My year of redemption had come. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. We saw that earlier in chapter 14. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is really hard. <clears throat> I mean, there's, there's no way that we can really try to explain away the wrath of God if you really believe the Scripture, can you? 
The harvest is grapes. The harvested grapes, they're all poured into the top vat of the wine press and crushed, and it's very graphic. The juice is called the lifeblood of the wicked. It completely fills the bottom of the vat of the wine press of wrath. The vat is as high as a horse's bridle or about six feet. And it's 1,600 stadia wide, or what would be for us 184 miles. It's a lot of blood. This gruesome depth and width of the blood symbolizes how no wickedness, <clears throat> no evil can escape the wrath of God's wine press. And the wine press is outside the city, so the wine is contaminated with disease and poisons that kill anyone who drinks it. That's why it's called the wine of his wrath. And notice who does the crushing. It is the one we are waiting on. It's our Jesus himself. Later on, we'll see this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That's tough stuff. Pastor Joe, I thought you were going to encourage us. <laughs> Here's the personal section. I've entitled this, Waiting on is Hard. This was the sermon preview this week that I put on social media. Jesus doesn't need our help judging the wicked. When that day comes, he'll do just fine by himself. You know, it's easy for us as we live in this world to get frustrated, discouraged, even angry about the things the wicked do in this world, isn't it? We struggle with that as Christians in this pagan world today sometimes. We get angry at government. We get angry at society. We get angry at blatant hypocrisy. We get angry at immorality. We get angry at disloyalty. We get angry at the moral decay of our culture. We get so frustrated with so many things in this might perceive as an attack on who we are, as an assault on what we believe in. We perceive it as injustice perpetrated on us. And it's tempting, isn't it, for the church to see ourselves in that way as the victims. And then we begin to think that we have the right to take justice into our own hands. And with all the inequity and the injustice and the unfairness, that can seem like a reasonable response to this world, doesn't it? So what do we do? We turn to political battles. We turn to culture wars. We turn to boycotts, blogs, sarcastic memes, and tweets on posts and social media. We even obsess over our own personal justice on individuals who wrong us, like the unredeemed drivers on I-75 and US-41. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> so all of these become our own, listen carefully, if we're not careful, all of these become our own personal wine press of wrath. We take on the job of crushing the grapes of wrath in this world. Question, why are we so obsessed with taking on all the energy emotionally necessary to take on the role of grape smashers? <laughs> I mean, at best, we can probably smash one grape at a time, right? By the time we smash one, eight more have grown. Here's the problem. 
Smashing the grapes of wrath isn't a job we're qualified for anyway, for many reasons. What about the times you were the unredeemed driver on I-75? Question, do you really think that your wine press of wrath is going to change the world? Do you really think that if you get angry enough and active enough and loud enough that you're going to see things change? The Battle Hymn of the Republic quoted most of Revelation 14, and those who sang it believed they were the instruments of God's wrath then. Look what they sang. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. It's a very arrogant song. So, if you are constantly angry, if you are constantly coming up with your own versions of your own wine press of wrath, I think this mindset might indicate something about you or us that we're struggling with waiting on Jesus. We're struggling with actually believing that Jesus is going to do what he says that he promised. We're struggling with the fact that his timing may be a lot better than ours. We're struggling with the fact that the harvest may not be ready yet, even though we think it's plenty ready. Church, I'm going to tell you, we are better off waiting for the day that John is describing in this passage. That's the day of judgment. The day the angel from the altar takes our prayers, combines them with the fiery coals, and he flings them to earth. And what prayers are those? Revelation chapter 6, we studied this. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That was the prayer. That was the question. And here is what this passage today is teaching us. The answer to our prayers for justice is this. Just wait and be patient because it's coming. And when the Spirit is done throughout this age, marking all the redeemed who belong to Jesus, he says, all the Father has given to me will come to me and no one can pluck them out of my hand. When the Spirit of God is done marking all of us, and the full harvest will be ready, Jesus will come. Jesus will harvest his redeemed, and then when he's harvested us and brought us to himself forever, he will bring judgment on the evil in this world, and he will bring the fullness of his kingdom of righteousness to earth. But I understand that waiting on Jesus can be hard. Letting the wheels of Jesus' justice turn, it's easier to make our own judgment day, day after day. But see, this is why I believe that John's vision is so graphic and so bloody. It's not meant to scare us. John is describing something that would be an unforgettable image, an unforgettable, encouraging reminder. And this passage reminds us, Jesus doesn't need your help to judge the wicked. He'll do that when he returns. And after he returns and he gathers us up, he will gather the grapes of wrath. He will crush them. That's all going to be handled by our, our Jesus. 
And this graphic description of the day of judgment is not scary for God's redeemed. It is a blessing. It is a comfort, a reminder to us, the redeemed, that we have a job to do, which is to be patient proclaimers. You guys remember that was one of the descriptions of the priesthood. Proclamation, integrity, and industry. We learned in our series on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Peter. This promise of judgment, this graphic, unforgettable image, this promise of judgment provides us this. It provides us the freedom to wait on Jesus, leaving judgment to Him while we focus on our proclamation. It reminds you who follow the Lamb wherever He goes that judgment of the wicked will be complete and it will be thorough. It reminds you that Jesus never called us to be judges of this world. He never called us to make America a Christian nation. There's only one Christian nation. It is the nation of His redeemed. It reminds us He's called us to make disciples, not judge them. It reminds you that your primary focus is that first proclamation that was described earlier in this chapter that was proclaimed to all nations of every tribe and every tongue. Do you remember that proclamation? Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. Instead of judging, our job is proclaiming. The world doesn't need our wrath and our judgment. There'll be plenty of that later. What the world desperately needs is something else. What the world really needs, what only God's redeemed can give them, is our proclamation of the gospel. Our proclamation that Jesus is coming, and if they have ears to hear the gospel... They can join us. They can receive mercy. They can receive forgiveness. They can become part of a loving, caring, loyal community. They can learn the joy of worshiping Him together who created the heavens and the earth. They can learn the joy of instead of being angry and full of judgment, they can learn the joy of being part of the 144,000 who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Jesus, we confess to you that far too often we want to take wrath and judgment into our own hands. We see the things in this world that frustrate us and anger us, sometimes things that anger us that aren't necessarily even things that should be judged, but we set ourselves up as judge and we build our own wine press of wrath. Jesus, please give us through this reminder of your promise of what you're going to do on that day that we don't have to worry about it. What we have to do is proclaim the message of the gospel that you have given us. Lord, set us free from that cancerous burden 
of having to judge the wickedness of the world, we're not qualified. We can only crush one grape at a time. Instead, Lord, help us, instead of being obsessed with anger, fall in love with the joy of proclaiming your gospel. And Lord, we pray that if it be your will, that you would bring us people in our sphere of influence that have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord, we pray that as you bring people, as we proclaim the gospel, that they would listen, they would understand it, they would trust you, they would become those who proclaim with us, they would join our fellowship, they would join our community, and that they, along with us, will just learn to love you and follow you wherever you go. So Lord, we ask that you would keep us mindful of this imagery, not because of fear, but as a reminder, it's coming and we don't have to worry about it. We ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. Guys, we will see you Saturday night for our Christmas Eve service. No service next Sunday, Saturday night here, five o'clock. Love you guys, have a great week.